You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. Only the Bible can accurately answer these questions. But therein lies the problem. Because most people won't appeal or look to the Bible, seek after those answers there. They won't appeal. And that's exactly why, right from the very beginning of time, man continues to go on throughout history asking these very same questions, but unfortunately only coming up empty. Who are we? What are we? And why are we? This question has weighed on the hearts of men since the beginning. We'd really like to find an answer. Many have gone to their graves, having spent the majority of their lives as well as their bank accounts in an effort to find it. As Pastor Mike will explain in today's message, we have easy access to the answer in God's Word. The book we've been studying, Genesis, offers an explanation directly from our Creator. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 2 as he begins his message, The Dust and Glory. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Now, first of all, let me say, I believe this one verse of Scripture here in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, provides for us the answer to the question that has been asked throughout the ages, right from the very beginning of time. It's been the subject of literature, poetry, philosophy. What am I talking about? Well, that is, who are we? These are the questions. Who are we? What are we? And why are we here? But listen, only the Bible can accurately answer these questions. But therein lies the problem. Because most people won't appeal or look to the Bible, seek after those answers there. They won't appeal. And that's exactly why, right from the very beginning of time, man continues to go on throughout history asking these very same questions, but unfortunately only coming up empty. I mean, think about it. There's been so many distortions of the truth as to our true identity. One fellow, I don't know if you're familiar with this name, 
a gentleman whose name is Desmond Morris, who is uh, a celebrated English zoologist. In 1968, in his very popular book, The Naked Ape, he refers to man in that uh, way, basically suggesting that man is nothing more than an animal. Uh, the socialist, Karl Marx, he, in describing man and what the essence of man was all about, suggested that man is in his labor, and that's the essence of man, and what man does. How about this for another example? Hugh Hefner, who is the founder of Playboy uh, magazine, he said, and I quote, we are nothing more than sensuous creatures and are to be understood largely in terms of our passion and sexual performance. Now, I bet none of you guessed that you'd come here this morning and your pastor would be quoting <laughs> you Hefner, but nevertheless, I guess you can expect it if you've been around for a while and you know me. There are also scientific research projects underway asking whether or not there's any difference between a human and a computer. And the idea there is that we are nothing more, man is nothing more than a processing machine. So, what are we to do? Well, how about deferring to God? How about we listen to and ask God for the answers to these questions? Because there is no profounder statement than found here in our text that is certainly relevant and answers these questions. Now, notice in verse 7, let's go back to verse 7, we're described here in a combination of what is low and what is high. Let's read it one more time, verse 7. And the Lord God turned a formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, again, we're described here in a combination of what is low and what is high. The dust of the ground, which is an image of lowliness, but then on the other hand, we're told man has been breathed into by God, which is an image of glory. So there you have it, dust and glory. Now let's break this down for you. Think about dust, for example. Let's talk about the symbolism of dust. Dust in the scriptures provide for us these fascinating images, not only here in this particular text of scripture, but it's often and frequently used. But dust in the scriptures, a little bit of Bible trivia, provide these fascinating images. It implies certain things. For example, the first of which is little worth and humble origins. Okay, let me give you a cross-reference for this. Let me cite Abraham, the father of the faith, as an example of this. Abraham emphasizing his littleness in interceding on behalf of the city of Sodom. Now remember, uh, God sought to counsel Abraham on what he was about to do, that is to destroy the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, the stench of their sin came up before God. And God had to deal with that, seeing how that God was a holy God. If he would have allowed them to continue in their sin, that would have influenced the entire world. And so God stepped in, even as he stepped in during the days of Noah, 
even as he will step in in the last days, in these days in which we live. And I don't think that's all that far off. God steps in and he intervenes in the affairs of man. But anyway, he sought to counsel with Abraham, to let him know. Now, isn't that interesting that God saw fit and chose to counsel with Abraham before he dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment? You know, just to sort of let him know what was going to happen, even in advance. I think there was something to be learned there. You know, God would even let us know, give us a heads up in advance of the things that he's doing. You know, we would see the bigger picture of things. And God has a way of doing that. It's one of the perks of being one of God's kids. We see things that other people don't see. We discern things that other people don't discern. God makes these things available to us, right? We're sort of like, uh, you know, in his confidence, He's, you know, with the Lord. And it's just, I, get, I, I think, just one of the perks of being a child of God. But anyway, in response to that information that was given to Abraham, remember Abraham uh, began this discussion, and he, he suggested uh, that, uh, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? You know, within Abraham's thinking, he was thinking, well, that wouldn't be right. He couldn't wipe out the entire uh, Twin Cities if there happened to be any righteous among them, right? So that was the whole premise of the discussion. Remember, he began with 50. He says, if there's 50 righteous, will you save the city? Yes, I'll save the city. And then uh, Abraham thought about it for a second. Wait a minute, I don't even know if there's 50. How about 45? Yes, I'll save it for 45. And then he thought about it for, again for a second. He, well, you know what? I, I don't think there's 45. How about 40? And then he went to 30. Then he went to 20. Then he went to 10, and then finally it was, you know, just uh, a lot and his wife and, and some of his children that were actually rescued before God judged Sodom and uh, Gomorrah. But anyway, uh, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? But, you know, he was sort of a little apprehensive and even approaching God. Now, remember where I'm going with all of this, Abraham Remember, I had suggested that dust implies certain things, that is little worth and humble origins. And that's who Abraham was when he stood before God to make this appeal on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I've gone a long way to set this up, but in Genesis chapter 18, in verse 27, then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust, there's that word, and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. So that's a cross-reference for you. Let me give you another example of this. Hannah. Do you remember who Hannah was? It's been a while since we studied the book of 1 Samuel. A couple of years, I think, actually, right? So going back a ways. But uh, remember Hannah? And uh, do you remember Hannah was the mother of Samuel, the prophet, the great prophet of, of Israel? But in Hannah praising God for hearing her request for a son who uh, was Samuel, remember she was barren for whatever reason, she wasn't able to give birth, and back then within that culture it was considered a curse if you weren't able to bear a son uh, to your husband. Remember her husband actually had two wives, and it wasn't that God allowed that, but that's just the way it was back then within that culture. And uh, that was never God's intention. But nevertheless, uh, he had two wives. One was very fruitful and bore him many children. And then there was Hannah. And remember, the, the other wife of her husband 
used to give Hannah a really bad time about that, that the fact that she wasn't able to bear her husband a child. In fact, back then, within that culture, it was grounds for divorce. You can actually put away your wife uh, if she wasn't able to bear you a child. It was under the, uh, the, their law, Israel's law, it was grounds for uh, being able to put away uh, your uh, wife. So she was really going through it. So she, she sought the Lord frequently, often. But it seemed as if her prayers were falling on deaf ears until finally it dawned upon her and she prayed this prayer. God, if you bless me with a child, if you open my womb, bless me with a child, I'll take that child, I'll consecrate that child, and I'll give him back to you. And that's exactly what God wanted to hear, right? And that's what the whole thing was really all about in the first place. And so finally, she bears the child, Samuel, and then Hannah breaks off into this wonderful prayer that, and, and worship that's recorded for us in 1 Samuel in chapter 2 in verse 8. She says there, he raises the poor from the dust. There again, you have that word. And lifts the needy from the ash heap. So, dust. Our first example, suggesting it's symbolic for little worth and humble origins. Now, let me give you another suggestion. Dust is also used as a symbol of the total defeat of one's enemies. And I would serve up a cross-reference from the book of Psalms in the 18th chapter in verses 40 through 42. And this is David. David wrote this particular song, psalm, song, the same thing. And uh, it was written out of his own experience of God delivering him from a variety of different enemies, but particularly Saul, who sought to take his life. Remember, he was moved with envy and jealousy, and, and he knew that God had repented of actually anointing him and placing him as king over Israel, and he had chosen David in his place. And that began this quest to actually kill uh, David. But time and time again, God had delivered David. So it was out of those experiences that David wrote this particular psalm. And in the 18th psalm, in verses 40 through 42, you have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I, that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust, there you have it, before the wind, and I cast them out like dirt in the streets. So, once again, dust is used as a symbol of the total defeat of one's enemies. We're going through the Bible. I'm giving you all of the examples, all of the different ways that this word dust is used. But then also, dust is used and is a symbol of mourning. And I would refer you to the book of Joshua in chapter 6, uh, in chapter 7, rather, in verse 6. And... Uh, Joshua has already led the children of Israel over into the land of promise and the land of Canaan. And the first city of conquest was the city of Jericho. And you know how that went. They circled the city. They cried out. The walls fell down. And, and Israel that day had a great victory. God had given them a great victory under the auspices of the great, their great general, who I believe was none other than uh, Jesus Christ himself, a theophanies, an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And now, flushed with victory, they go on to the second 
city of conquest there in the land of Canaan, which was the city of Ai. Very good. Okay, a little pop quiz. You're with me. Okay? But you know what? Joshua had failed to pray about that, right? They were flush with victory. They thought they were invincible, that they no longer needed the help of God. And so rather than dispatching the full armies of Israel, they only sent out a portion of the armies of Israel. And what did they find? They found that they were defeated. They came back dragging their tails behind them, right? And so in response to that, and many that day were actually killed in that battle there in the city of Ai. And so defeated, we are told in Joshua in chapter 7 and verse 6, that they sprinkled dust upon their heads. And by the way, the reason why they lost that particular battle was because of a fellow whose name was Achan, who took of the accursed stuff, the things that were, that were won in the battle in the city of Jericho, and he, and he hid them in his tent, remember? So he disobeyed the Lord because all of those things were to be put into God's treasury and to be used for his glory. Later on, you know, uh, in the building of the, uh, the tabernacle and the temple, of, you know, uh, rather the temple and uh, the things of God. And uh, remember, Achan took some of those things for himself, and that was one of the reasons why Israel was defeated that particular day. But anyway, dust is a sign of mourning. So when the armies came back, Joshua, in anguish because of the defeat, because of the news that many of his fellow Israelites had died in that battle, took dust and sprinkled it upon their heads, which was a sign of mourning. Now, also, dust is used to depict man in his misery. The word dust in the book of Job, for example, is used no less than 22 times. But let me cite one particular text of scripture for you. In the book of Job in chapter 42, in verses 5 and 6, there Job says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So again, it represents dust, that is, represents man in his misery. Okay, so I've gone a long way, but you get the picture, right? Moses, the, the picture that Moses is painting here for us. I believe Moses is the writer of the book of Genesis. The littleness of man and his humble origins. But there's something else here that I want to draw your attention to as it relates to dust. Dust is the ultimate symbol of frustration. And I believe that Satan, the devil himself, is a classical example of this. Now, uh, later on in one of our future studies, we're going to talk about how that he uh, enticed Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll get to that portion of scripture uh, over the next couple of uh, weeks. But the result of that was God had cursed the serpent, who was actually a devil, who was actually the uh, devil. And in Genesis in chapter 3 and verse 14, which was a part of that curse, he said, dust in the mouth, which was a figure of defeat and humiliation. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust or dirt all the days of your life. So then, in this case, uh, 
dust is used as a figure of defeat and humiliation. You know, something else that I want to draw your attention to as it relates to Satan and the devil. You know, before the devil's fall, he was an extremely beautiful, powerful, and intelligent creation. He was highly favored by God. But the problem was, was that he was lifted up in pride. In Isaiah, in chapter 14, in verses 13 through 15, we're given a little glimpse of what had taken place before God even created the physical universe. He says, for you, that is Lucifer, Satan, the devil, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet you shall be brought down to the very pit of hell, Sheol in the Hebrew, to the lowest depths of the pit. And so we know how this whole thing played out. The devil rebelled. God brought him down. And instead of finding himself replacing God, he became an antagonistic towards God. He became an outcast. He became a fugitive, and he had his first taste of dust. His first taste of dust. So, after successfully tempting Adam and Eve to rebel against their creator, expecting God to judge the first man and woman, and that was his intention, right? To get them to disobey God. There was only one prohibition in the garden. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And so the devil thought that he was gonna, God was going to come into the garden and that he was going to judge Adam and Eve, that it would be lights out for Adam and Eve. But he found, rather, in its place, God coming graciously into the garden to clothe them with skins taken from the first animal sacrifice, and he heard God pronouncing an eventual and full deliverance from sin by Jesus, who would crush the head of Satan, which, by the way, is the first prophetical announcement concerning Christ in all of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Eat dirt. Satan, basically, that's what that comes down to. That's what God was referring to here. But his most bitter, now I'm going a long way to, to share this. You're saying, why am I spending so much time talking about Satan? Why am I talking so much about the devil? Well, hang in there. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But his most bitter mouthful of dust, that is the devil, was at the cross when he thought he had engineered the death of God. Father's house, there's a place for me in my Father's house, where I long to be. When something gets close to an ending, we naturally turn our attention to the beginning. When a child is about to graduate, we look at baby pictures. When a beloved spouse of many years grows close to death, we go over the story of how we met. When we pack up our stuff and move away from a house, we remember the first times we walked in the door. 
And as we draw close to the end of days, it seems only fitting to return to in the beginning. We can watch as light is created in land and sea and all the creatures, day and night in the sun and moon. And when we take a look at the glorious and amazing creation of the world, we can remember that it's the same God from the beginning who is ruling over the end. We can watch in awe, remembering that the end is also good news as we eagerly await His return. And here at In My Father's House, we're so glad you've decided to spend your day with us. In My Father's House is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. It's easy to get here with access from Port Authority and Penn Station on 34th. We'd love to see you. Pop over to our website, harvestnyc.org, to find times and so much more. And if you feel compelled to partner with this ministry financially, there's a link for that as well. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. While you're there, take a look around to find additional audio, a link to our Vimeo and podcast. That's all we have time for today. We've loved spending time with you, and we can't wait to meet up with you again. See you next time here in my father's house. <laughs>